0: He said, the high-end, your highest performers, you don't need to motivate them. They're, they're, they're self-generating people that you just kind of get out of their way. He said, there's a vast middle in, in large
1: organizations, and that's where your challenge is. Welcome to Owning Your Legacy. I'm your host, Lorette Rondonet. This podcast is about exploring just what it means to own your legacy. Through intimate conversations, we explore how to bravely tap into purpose, leadership, and becoming visible. My hope is that we inspire you to realize your own potential. Go after your dreams and boldly leave your mark. It all begins with bravely owning your legacy. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm great, Lorette. I'm so honored to be with you. Thank you. i This so is g- incredible. I'm so glad you're here live. I really appreciate that you could make yeah. it live. It makes it so much more of a great conversation. Um, so yeah, I would love you to just kind of dive in and talk a little bit about yourself and tell your story. I'm your classic entrepreneur,
0: which means many, many screw-ups. Uh, we're in Chicago. I went to uh, Northwestern for uh, graduate school, Cool. had an idea, dropped out, uh, started what became the first magazine in the world that covered online and internet.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: the short, The shorter story is I did it for a number of years, put me on the Inc. 500 list, eventually sold it. The longer story was, any mistake you could make in business in the first two years I made, yeah. I ended up, I started at 26 at the age of 28. I ended up going into the federal bankruptcy courts.
1: Right down, down the street.
0: Down in the loop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and and filing papers for the company. That was not a lot of fun at age 28. No. Um, and... And, but at the same point, so, so the way I put it is, I, I had a pity party for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, only one person was invited. Yeah. And at the end of, of a week, I realized, like, well, we had this incredible sell through on newsstands around the world. We had national advertisers, we had thousands of subscri- subscribers. I ended up restarting it. When the internet came around, I could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Then it started gro- growing like crazy, and I ended up selling it to a big publisher.
1: Is it hard to sell something that you started?
0: Well, it's hard from an emotional point of view, but also I had an early experience of screwing up the sale, Mm. which gave me an appreciation, a a huge learning later on, because for a lot of owners of companies who've never been through it, Mm. it's gut wrenching. It's not just the decision, it's the mechanics of how do you do that. Like if you're, you know, if you spent your whole life building a business, You've never done it before. When you come to that point where you want to sell it or even pass it on to the next generation, incredibly hard, as you know.
1: Yes, I think that would be really hard. And I do know many people in the industry, in my industry, in the flavor industry that have that were family businesses and have sold. And I, I always think that that decision does have to be gut wrenching and. Yeah. And they miss it, you know, after after it's sold. I've heard from many of them that, you know, I, I kind of miss it. Right. Yeah. Hard decision. So then what what was next? Well, uh I'm you know, you've heard the expression
0: when the student is ready the teacher will appear. Yes. Yeah. So I had this magazine online access and sold it, and it was early internet. Didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And uh it was really like we found a safe home for it. Mm-hmm. They, it started and we had no competitors. And you think, oh, yay, I've started a category with no competitors. Well, that's really hard in a way when you can't, when, when your customers can't figure out how to kind of slot you in their heads. Right. When competition came around, that's when we grew like crazy. Ultimately became hyper-competitive. Anyway, so I sell it and the online world was a small community Mm-hmm. Um, at that time. And I was at a conference, and there was a guy I knew, and he comes up to me at the conference and he starts handing me a new business card. And I'd seen him before, and he always had new business cards. I'm like, dude, can't you hold down a job? Right. You know? And he and he says, No, you don't get it. We were in Silicon Valley, and and he mm-hmm. said that he had he was called an interim CEO. And when the venture funds wanted to give someone money, they weren't going to give it to some rookie engineer, mm-hmm. and he would parachute in with a team and the money. This blew me away. Unique concept. Incredible. And I thought, and then he hands me the card, and the card said CEO of Yahoo. And in the industry, we knew Yahoo was going to go public on zero revenue. Not zero earnings, right? but no revenue. And the first early companies internet figured out how to go public Inside thirty days, which was new in the U.S., so I basically said, "You're now my mentor," hmm. and came home here to Chicago and bought two domain names. I bought interimceo.com and interimcfo.com, and I just started doing gigs for companies. Wow! So did that for
1: a while. Had some It was creative and very, you know, to take that initiative and get those domain names was smart.
0: So I did that for a number of years. Had some success at it. Um, mm-hmm. where I was working like my mentor with early stage tech companies mm-hmm. was in a couple IPOs. I was the person who helped some of these teams sell their companies for high multiples. Then social networks came around, MySpace, Facebook, LinkedIn, and launched an organization for people like me mm-hmm. who were doing project-based leadership roles. And that basically up till now is is it is this organization called Interim Execs?
1: And talk a little bit about what you learned. And you know, as I said, I've been listening to some of your past podcasts, and like, I found it intriguing what you learned at the beginning of interim executives and and where it evolved to. We had six years of failing at it when we first launched because, look,
0: we live in a Google-driven world. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try this as an experiment and a side project, and we'll launch a free. Search engine because
1: everyone expects because of Google this right. has to be free and then would you get paid through advertising was that the thought yeah and
0: I just or... figured we'll see what happens I've had some success right. with different businesses I'm going to go fund it <clears throat> and and philosophically I'm wired that I want to work around people younger than me mm-hmm. in addition to cohort you know same age and so uh, I'm a Michigan grad University of Michigan and recruited uh, a. College grad named Olivia Wagner Mm -hmm. basically said, Here's your budget, go make this free network. And that failed, but she was phenomenal. And so eventually we became uh, business partners. Um, So we had a first failure. That was three years. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, everybody says fail fast and pivot, which sounds great. The reality of it is it's painful. You know, because you've gotten it wrong and you mm-hmm. spent a lot of money and you just... Anyway, so then we pivoted to a model the opposite, an association. Mm-hmm. That also failed. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, we we glommed on this concept we called Red Team. And that was the winning ticket. That That hit and all of a sudden, like we had billionaires from around the world calling up and saying, I need someone from the Red Team and this was before zoom calls i was kind of like looking around like we just made that up yeah and but it but it endured and now it's a brand that's been around for about 10 years
1: and talk about curating i like the the word curating and that one of the one of your customers or clients said you really need to curate this top talent and and talk a little more about what the red team is for our listeners so they can understand when you would need a red team for your listeners who own companies
0: um, we, we are all in a group that if you're going to spend more money, for example, more than say your management team, the bar for owners is so high and you may think in your business, Oh, I'm open. I try new things and people and all that. Well, the reality is that for new talent to show up, that is going to help your business in some way that bar for most owners is so it's ridiculously high. And so, this what we discovered was something that was not fair. You couldn't be like an employment agency, and just nice people would show up, and oh, you would just be able to go match them. And this is kind of what led to the book because at this point we're over seven thousand five hundred executives in your database, yeah, who've shown up on our proverbial doorstep from fifty countries. And the majority of those executives, I would describe as having careers that are okay, but not remarkable. They are not where you would say the top 2 or 3% exceptional leaders. The majority, their careers are not that. Right. And so to be effective, to have an offering where you know, a company would show up and to say, boy, we
1: could have someone incredible for you. Incredibly high bar. Back to that curation; it's like a boutique, and I, I love that that you describe the red team, which is rapid, rapid executive, executive deployment. The yeah. rapid executive deployment, which is brilliant name, but that team is about the top two to three percent. Is how you describe it, right?
0: Right, ridiculously yeah, successful good. people, and and it's not even that; it, it's the bar is so high because it's not just your credentials that. You know, you you hit a billion dollar home run. It's that you still have this fight for the game. You still have this eagerness, and and you 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 have some humility. Mm-hmm. There are so many ways in which you know, folks. We know um, they can look great on paper, but it just isn't going to work. And many so, many
1: times I have made that mistake. Yeah, and I I love how you talk about too. Once they say retirement. They're probably not going to be. Yeah, one we're, of, we're done. They're done. Yeah, we're done. And because
0: again, you're the owner of the company, and really, that's what you're. No, you you want your whole team, and and yeah. they're just ready to, you know, walk through walls for
1: you mm-hmm. and for the business. They're doing it for this
0: this mission, right? That is I, like bigger than calling. themselves.
1: Yes, I think that's that's huge, and that they probably don't need the money anymore. It's more about the calling and making an impact right. for a diff- you know, for another company and helping them succeed. I think it's a brilliant model, and that they're not easy to find. You say that they're shy; that a lot of these really powerful and you know have made a lot of impact in other people's lives, but they're like you said, humble and and kind of. Uh, how do you find them? How do you pull them out of that shell?
0: You know what? What this is reminding of also is is that prior to the. You know, the current book's called Right Leader, Right Time. We did a book 10 years ago called How They Did It. And to get in that book, a, a founder had to launch, grow, sell for 100 million or more, or go public at 300 million or more. And I thought, we're celebrating, as we said, the heartland. Yeah. And anyone that qualified would just be thrilled to be in it. The reality was, for two years, all the, the founders we identified said no.
1: I thought this is so obvious, and their attitude was, "Yeah, no, I'm,
0: I'm good." That's very I'm interesting. Good. It and was you made, and you made him
1: immortal in a way. You know, I mean, being in a book is is really a, it's well, a talk about legacy. That's, I'll
0: tell you, Lorette would crack
1: the code. You tell me if this
0: resonates you with your dad. Mm-hmm. Is for two years I had a whole team on it. I was fortunate I I could do this with a lot of people around me to help research, and and organizations helped like Dow Jones and Morningstar you know, that literally researched throughout the Midwest to say these are all the people that have hit these home runs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I was frustrated one day and I was talking to one of these incredible founders and he was just saying no, like the rest. And I said, you have a legacy and it cannot die with you. You did something. This was a guy named Vince Pettinelli, and he had done something so improbable he had launched group mental health homes, which is not a recipe, you'd say, to create a, a billion-dollar business. He had been the commissioner of mental health programs for the state of Ohio. He was not your classic entrepreneur. Oh. So he creates a business worth $200 million, 20 states serving tens of thousands of people. Marvelous mission. He says, no. I say, you have a legacy and this. Cannot die with you. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay. And I thought, it's a powerful word, isn't it? Oh next. my God, I'm only like five degrees off what I was saying before, but those five degrees mm-hmm. are critical. Right. And so, with the rest of everyone who ended up in the book, I just said, You have a legacy and I cannot die with you. You did something so remarkable. And the next mm-hmm. generation of entrepreneurs, they have
1: to know what you did. Because and you every have single to, one of them said yes. That's then. brilliant. And it's it's really about, I like to say I, l- I love doing this podcast because people get to share their experiences, their strength, and their hope is uh, kind of a... And it's it's almost your responsibility, you know, yeah. to really bring that to the light and help other people. So tell me a bit about your book writing process. How long did it take you? I'm, I'm a very slow... You know, the first book uh, called Start With
0: No with uh, my business partner, Jim Camp. He's the named author, Jim Camp. He's passed, but... He was regarded as probably the greatest negotiation coach in the world. We wrote it. That only took seven years. And then... Okay, I don't feel so
1: bad. I'm on like year two of
0: mine. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> fast. Uh, and then how they did it, I thought, oh, we're going to do this in an hour. It was, this was crazy. I, we had an event at the Four Seasons here mm-hmm. in a ballroom. And I had, of the 45 uh, founders who were in the book... 22 were in the room, and we mic'd them all up, and we had these, these cool. interviewers, and I thought, we're going to do a book in an hour. They're going to ask each other questions, and it's, it's just going to take an hour. Yeah. Well, you know, the two years of rejection plus the two years it took to edit and get the rest the of the people. editing, isn't it? The editing. It's always editing. Yeah. So that one was four, and then this one I thought, well, this is just me and Olivia, my co-author. How hard can this one be? But it kept on like, oh, there are more leaders to talk to, and this person's an incredible fixer, and this person's an incredible artist, and, and oh, yeah. remarkable people were showing up. And yes, yeah, so
1: there's six years. So I totally want to get into that and the description of the different leadership styles. But before we go away from the red team, I'm curious. So say someone has a situation where they're looking to launch a new ERP, asking for a friend. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> yes. Hypothetically. And, you know, really at the beginning stages of it, needing to get requirements and what's the right ERP for our company. Talk me through how your red team could help a company like that. Well, that that is the classic
0: use case for a CIO. It's usually a CIO, chief information officer, as opposed right. to a, a CTO. Some CFOs are expert in that as well. Mm-hmm. But- You're describing something where there is now this kind of leadership talent out there, CIOs who want to be project based, okay, and and this is what they do, and you know, for a lot of companies, that ERP implementation is going to get screwed up. Yeah, and so I have at least
1: two failures in that bucket. I'm sorry
0: to hear that, (sighs) but and it's expensive and painful. You're you're with you're in good company because it is. One of the strongest reasons a CIO gets called into project-based work Mm -hmm. is to correct a failed ERP implementation. Right. So that is a classic example of- Your sweet spot, so to speak. That is one of them for sure. For a lot of companies, maybe they have a CIO, but it could be, they just don't need that person permanently on staff. And so project-based is efficient. This is the reason why around the world there's an explosion in what, what's called fractional or, or interim CFOs, is because the expertise exists. Mm-hmm. And now there are all kinds of companies that have fractional CFO help that it didn't exist before. And there's no way that
1: those companies could or would hire a permanent uh, CFO. And then as far as the process goes in that would they assess the situation, say at ad long, and then go? Okay, now you need, you know, a project manager. You know, I imagine they have to look at it from a hundred thousand feet and kind of assess where we are, what other teammates they are going to need for this project. Um, is that kind? Of, and then it's usually under a year. It sounds like that most of the project-based work that, and that could probably be even longer with that one. But I, I leave that sort of thing to the experts.
0: But mm. I'll tell you one thing as regards our business. We've been at this a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm amazed at the talent of the leaders around us. They've all accomplished more than I ever have operationally mm-hmm. in my career. But in terms of an understanding of how to do this work, I know my game. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, rules have developed. Mm-hmm. And one of, we have, what we call seven rules for a red team. And one of them is called generosity front. The reason I'm bringing this up is that, for example, if you take example of you as owner, um, the way we do this is, is we don't want to get paid. We don't want any retainers. We want to get the team, the owners, the shareholders, whoever it is, in touch with the executive or the executive team as soon as possible. And we want that executive to say upfront, no pay, no contract. This is exactly what I would do if I was doing this. Mm -hmm. We need that generosity upfront because our belief is, is that execution is 99% of the game. And for, you know, for people, for executives out there who think that their brilliance is so precious that they're only going to give that up after they get the contract and they're in there doing what they do. We don't buy it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to hear to make sure this is going to work well. We need to hear, this is what I would do on day one. This is what day 30 would look like. This is what I think day 180 is going to look like. This is, this is who I am and you should know it up front before we ever,
1: Start the work. Yeah, we ever do a contract. Mm -hmm.
0: We have a mantra internally, which is perfect or not at all. Yeah, we just we own the company, and we are not going to do this if there isn't high odds that everyone's going to be happy.
1: And incredibly different than recruiting.
0: Very different from recruiting. You're right. Mm -hmm. I don't even uh, the the process of how recruiters do permanent is kind of foreign to me.
1: Yeah, and 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 doesn't work so well all the time. You know, I, Yeah, what, what's I mean, their hit rate? Would you say 50%? Uh, I don't
0: know. I mean, we we partner, we're, we're happy to work with permanent recruiters because this is so different. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, when we get a phone call, our response time is, you know, within minutes to 48 hours.
1: That you have a human that you think could help the yeah. situation? Wow, I mean, literally we
0: had, we had two families Kind of Hatfield and McCoys, they were ready to kill each other. They were all on a Zoom call during COVID, but you could see, even in separate offices, they all hated each other. Oh man, the two families, <laughs> and it was the situation of their business was dire, imminent failure, and and we kind of knew even before the call, and so had already arranged for a great uh, uh, crisis executive to be ready, mm. and within minutes can I just invite this executive to join the Zoom call? Texted him and said, join. And he got on and there were no s- speeches, Lorette. He wasn't like, oh, I'm the greatest thing in the world. This is what I've done. That's not what he did. He immediately knew how dire it was. And he said, what's your cash position right now today? Have you done a 13 week? Wow. What does that look like? And I thought, oh, we got this right. Yeah. Because if anyone is going to save this business and these families, we got the right person in there.
1: Did it end up, do you know where the end, what's the end of the story or is it in process? The
0: end of that story was good and bad. They had waited so long and the state of their crisis was such that it ended up salvaging
1: assets. That was not one where they lived happily ever after. And it was too late to- do anything better than that probably you know i I do know what you mean they
0: had left it to the point well a little bit in your space a food manufacturing business Mm -hmm. that had so broken down in their operations that the the city authorities where they were uh, they they just they um they had made too many mistakes to recover we there were other examples of of saving though that are Mm-hmm. That that are that very have glorious,
1: heavy, heavy endings. Yes.
0: Oh yeah, you know we've we've had families where, you know, they in one case California where they had fired 150 workers. The equipment had broken down. the The, the primary growers of table grapes in the U.S. Mm. their families in the Central Valley and they own packaging plants. And the plant broke down, fired 150 people, uh, mysteriously. There were losses couldn't be accounted for from former managers who had left and uh, put in a CEO and a CFO. And within, it was miraculous, within a number of weeks, the equipment was back working. They convinced the customers to come back. They rehired all 150 people.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: It was beautiful. And, and it was really cool. You must be- feel
1: proud of those stories. Like, that. that's fantastic.
0: I li- this has become a calling, and I love those stories. That is great. We recorded video in the plant, and in the plant there, I forget if it was like a dozen languages mm-hmm. among all the workers. The CEO we put in, very talented guy, he spoke six or seven languages. He kind of learned Hindi because <laughs> they had a number of employees there. That's impressive. And he 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 went up to one of the women working, and and he said, "Grandmother." and in uh-huh. Hindi to her, and she started crying Aww. because because the former management had never even
1: acknowledged that she existed. Or tried to speak their language. That is a great story. All right. Now we need to switch gears, I'm thinking, to the leadership styles that um, you describe really well in your book. So I would love you to kind of walk through fabs for our listeners. <laughs> Fixer artist, builder
0: strategist. So what we saw among exceptional executives was that they tended to develop a process, an approach, a system over time. In shorthand, we called it leadership style. And there were four styles we observed. And we gave them those labels, fixer artist, builder, strategist. Fixer, as as the name implies, loves turnaround. The thing that you can tell if you're a fixer is you need to run into the burning building time after time. Yes. So, to give you an ex- example, for me, Lorette, you know, I've been in business a long time. Problems come up daily. I do not get my energy off of it. I just don't. Me neither. <laughs> so, right, and and you know, but for but for a fixer, they need that. Mm-hmm. And uh, artist, artist is the person, and they see the world as a blank canvas or a piece of clay to be molded. And that's what you are. I'm a very strong artist and and what we write in the book is you know it can be to your peril.
1: I want you to talk more about that because I also took the test, and I am an artist and strategist, so i I don't know how you get to it's I must have been like on the line for both of those when we I took try it.
0: to identify with the assessment a dominant
1: and a secondary, yeah, okay. So, artist was my first, I believe, and then strategist. And you and you. Well, did you find it? Is it does it fit you? Yes, absolutely, and um, and that's why I wanted you to dig deeper into it. And you were talking about like to someone's peril and like you can like you know kill your whole career over a cause or you know over a belief. It sounded like a little bit to me. It's it's hard to turn it
0: off. You know, supposedly Mozart said that he wrote music the way cows piss. He just couldn't stop. Yeah. And and I'm wired in that way, which is dreaming up projects and ideas. Ideas. And I, was, and I
1: love overlaying this. And I think one of one of your podcasts, um, there was a Myers Briggs woman that and she was a specialist in that. And it does kind of overlay, um, and also like strength finders, that one, ideation is in my top five. Belief is my number one, but I feel like an artist, I have more ideas than my team can handle. And it's Traction right. has helped us tremendously with me. At least I can dump them somewhere. Traction is a an yeah, um, execution. Yeah, the yeah. EOS. Yeah, EOS has saved my life. Being an artist, I think EOS is really helpful.
0: You have to have it.
1: Yes. Do yeah. you
0: use that too? Yes. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So
1: we can be creative and put it in long-term issues and we don't feel like it's lost. Yes. <laughs> yes. And
0: and you and I need to be surrounded with people who are operationally excellent. Absolutely. Then what's after artist? So artist, uh, uh, and, and artist on your team, artist is renegade energy. Yes. It, um, it's not necessarily the most popular person on the team because mm-hmm. they can make these discontinuous leaps. And when everyone is chugging, chugging along and comfortable and all that, and all of a sudden the artist throws the grenade and everybody may not appreciate it.
1: Right. And but let's it's, change direction now and let's, you know, right. shiny objects get me all the time.
0: Yeah. 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 But see, the thing is, modern world, because markets change so fast now, mm-hmm. there has to be that energy. Yeah. Not necessarily dominant, but there has to be that energy. Which, by the way, this is reminding me that among all the artist leaders we interviewed, one of my favorite questions we asked, we interviewed a lot of leaders for the book, Right. And we asked uh, what happened on your worst day mm. and i didn't mean an amalgamation of of things. I meant what was the day, the day, and what happened and one of the artist leaders said, "I was ignored. Mm. I thought that is incredible hmm. that is a point of artist energy, which is that you have to enlist, you have to enroll that the This this idea to reach some
1: flowering market. There have to be people who are glomming onto it. And I want to hear too, like what you think a perfect makeup of a team is. Maybe once you get through the other two. So so builder. Mm -hmm. uh,
0: I know everyone in business loves to be builders. We get that. And you thought I was a builder. You brought me a builder Mm -hmm. mug, and I did. And I stand corrected. I'm going to get you an artist mug. Thank you. So. (laughs) We mean builder in the sense, though, that it's the energy that takes the small, the nascent team, client, product, service, and is driven for market domination, has to reach scale. Mm -hmm. It's their mantra. And builder energy tends to be that when that person hits scale, hits market domination, they're likely to rotate off. Mm-hmm. They're likely to go seek out a new team, new set of clients, new company. Kind of like see the this?
1: fixer, they get bored as well, you see?
0: It's, it's a little different quality from boredom for them because, because this, this mantra for builder is always around people, product, process. Okay. And when you've got domination, you kind of already won. Mm-hmm. And, and for a lot of those folks, they'll move on. You see when people hit an IPO... If they leave, you're, you're looking at builder energy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm occasionally in Boston. There's a bakery I've talked about called Tate that I think is incredible. Mm-hmm. They're not here in Chicago. In Boston, they crush it. Hmm. In the city, in the suburbs, you're going to hit one of those bakeries. And at the heart of that, there's a builder. Hmm. That, that's somebody that gets that idea of dominating a market. Very so clear. then the the fourth style is strategist, which we could have called conductor, pilot, captain. This is leader at scale. This is leader in a vast or complex organization that goes beyond you know, what Stephen Covey called personal span of control.
1: Mm-hmm. A
0: lot of fixer artist builder energy. You see these people on teams. There are five people. There are 10 people. There are 50, maybe 100. But there are personal relationships going on that is that is the foundation for trust and getting work done strategist yes they have relationships within a business but you know fred smith retired a year or two ago from federal express from fedex what 250,000 employees right you know strategist energy is is a different it is a different kind of energy from the rest in terms of being able to advance that organization in a way that is different from fixer artist and builder
1: almost like they can see the system and how the system works together and patterns i think like almost like an engine you're you're bringing up the perfect language that strategist uses mm-hmm. and one of the
0: leaders we interviewed Dr. Janine Davidson she was the undersecretary of the Department of Defense she ran the navy wow. and she had trained as an air force pilot and to ask her what is it like an organization with a million people and she said it's systems of systems and and you're you're operating in a way that a 1% change just a one percent one degree shift in course can be massive even if you don't see it initially. Mm-hmm. The language of strategist is always around loyalty, being mentored, mentorship, longevity cross-training, gratitude. Legacy. Um, legacy. Mm. And that's not what you hear from fixer, artist, builder. Mm-hmm. Fixer, you hear about velocity. You hear about, we got to staunch the bleeding. Right. You know, artists. What does
1: it mean? I think you said the strategist leads from the middle, core, something about the middle. Strategist, one of the leaders we interviewed, he
0: he had this great observation. He said, you know, his name was, is Mahesam Leah, and he ran an insurance business with 14,000 people. He said, you know, the low end of the organization, the bottom, something's going to happen. It's not going to be good. He said, the high end, your highest performers, you don't need to motivate them. They're, they're, they're self-generating people that you just kind of get out of their way. He said, there's a vast middle. In in large organizations, and that's where your challenge is: is what do you do to cause to cause that that kind of army to move
1: one way or the other,
0: one way or another, in a in a coordinated way. Hmm. You know, one of the things we loved talking to a lot of strategists was this idea of cadence, mm-hmm. and that there is a heartbeat to organization, and that there is there's a there's a syncopated rhythm to a board. There's there's a beat to a marketing department, to a sales function, to operations. Mm-hmm. They, they have this rhythm and heartbeat in organization. And strategists, you need to hear that. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be great at figuring out how to quicken the pace of what is going
1: on. And that's hard. I would like to hear what you think makes up a strong team. Like what would be the mix of of the different leadership styles?
0: The first recommendation I've always got for teams is that the more you know about how you're wired, the better. Um, It's just going to help you in your career to understand what your soul's desire is, what drives you, what do you love and what do you not love? So, you know, hopefully we're being a little additive to that conversation, in terms of helping people get some self-discovery. The second thing is, you know, we're fans of report that, tell that to the people you work with. Because if you're on a team that is trying to excel, it means that the, nor- the more you know about each other, the more I know about your strengths and, and what you know about my strengths, the better we're going to do because you know if you're on teams and where it's like you're going to beat each other up over over weaknesses you're never going anywhere I strong totally as a group but if on a team to know this is what i love and this is where i excel give me the ball when when this is in my court the converse is to know what you love and where you just you are world class mm-hmm. is we need to give you the ball here right and so these these kind of tools and metrics that that give more insight for each of us, I think are all good and all additive to build a better team.
1: Mm -hmm. So there's not really a perfect mix necessarily of, you know, fixer builder and, you know, one strategist or anything like that. It, It can, it's just a matter of recognizing each other's strengths and using them to the fullest.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, there's a bit of jazz and improvisation that goes on here, but you know, we would say that all organizations have, have life cycles And so to recognize, you know, for example, when an organization goes into crisis ought to be pretty obvious. You need a fixer. You need a fixer. I mean, you you know, as as we're recording this, FTX is now in month six of bankruptcy. The court appointed a veteran fixer, a guy named John Ray. Where was he before FTX? He was at Enron. He was cleaning Mm -hmm. up that mess. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, that's what we would say. You know, we we interviewed um, Andy Grove, most famous CEO at Intel, caused all of their massive growth. Andy Andy Grove said he had to have a wild duck on the team. Artist. He meant artist. Mm-hmm. And he had this guy who didn't have the typical engineering mindset. Their whole mindset was, how do we cram more transistors under a chip, they were great at it, mm-hmm. but they needed somebody in there to just come from left field, and that was the guy who formed Intel Ventures. And mm-hmm. so the idea of these complementary styles, yeah, and what's making a stronger at the time. team.
1: So, how would a leader apply these different leadership styles? And also, you talk a lot about you know staying in your zone, and I think you you say reject what doesn't bring you your highest good. I'd love to hear some tips on how people can actually do that in real life, because that is hard. What what we said in the book is exceptional
0: leaders tend to reject more of what is not for their highest and best use. It's very easy to say it's so incredibly hard to do. Mm -hmm. Further on in career gets easier and easier the more success you have. When you're younger, good luck. Right. You need the job. You need the money. We get that but if you yeah. look at the arc of somebody's career, the further that it goes, if they're successful, you tend to see more and more that their decisions become intentional and they become more powerful, they, be, they become more confident. And that's what we're trying to get at. It's not so much that you have a predetermined lane as that you make your lane, you're figuring it out. And you know, in a lot of cases, it's only with hindsight that this becomes 2020 and you see, oh, this is the reason I chose that over this. And, right. and it starts to make more sense. So for you as the leader, the first thing that we're saying is, is the more you can figure out that still small voice in you, mm-hmm. that that the more you're aligning with what your soul's desire is, you're just cut out for more success and more
1: happiness if you can do that. It reminds me also back to traction a little bit of the accountability chart process, which is, again, not an easy process. When you start traction, it's for our listeners, it's like an organizational chart on steroids. And each box has three to five of the key activities that you as in any role that you have are supposed to be doing. And that for me was probably one of the first steps of doing exactly what you're saying of figuring out what I do love. So in my accountability box, it's big relationships, it's culture, it's and I'm horrible at detail, and I'm there's a lot that I know I'm not good at. I'm not a great fixer. I could start it, but I'm not going to finish it for you. So I think that is really, really good advice of knowing what your passion and what your calling is.
0: Absolutely, and Um, and so then, you know, you as the leader, you're taking that to your team, mm
1: -hmm.
0: and you're going to make for far better. Results for your business and enjoy life but more yeah, and you are and and it it means that along the way, you know people are not necessarily going to be sticking around, and that's not a bad thing, right, you know, because for them to go move on to what is truly highest and best for them for calling for them is better right,
1: and yeah. even as you're talking about the young the young ends, and I totally agree it's it's almost like paying your dues, but you learn what you don't like, which is a huge gift as well, right, yeah. So when you talk we hope about it. You to get to the point yeah, where what yeah. you're doing is
0: something where, you know, David Brooks, the book Second Mountain, the word committed. Mm. What are you committed to? And and you know, I was I do a lot of audible and I'm listening to the book as I'm walking around Chicago here, and it's like, oh my God, this has become a calling. Like at some point you you get to a level of commitment where you say, it's no longer about the money. Right. This has become my calling, and I have to do this. I agree. It's a
1: nice place to get to. It is. So I think be I a little disturbing have, too. It can be, and maybe on that note. But when you say you know, find your quiet space and how you really hear that inner voice, talk about how you unplug because I I think that's interesting. How you really rejuvenate your soul.
0: Well, I meditate twice a day, and if I did not meditate, I think I would have exploded uh, many, many years ago. Because Do you use
1: guided or you just are, are you probably so good at it I now? Got,
0: I, years ago, took TM, Transcendental Meditation. Yeah. A, a very good friend of mine was one of the licensed TM instructors in the U.S., and he had studied under the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in India, and that was the Beatles guru. And the Maharishi was the guy who brought TM to the U.S., yeah. Uh, I don't know, sixties, seventies, and and my buddy had studied under him and they're, you know, it's a licensed, you know, program to it's go it's not
1: easy to meditate. I I'm a big believer in headspace. Did one like last night to fall asleep. I love it. Yeah. I'm out before the breathing exercise is even over. But I like so I think some of us need a little help with getting there and but it's I agree with you that whole breathing in general is what I say is, don't even give it a, a label like, oh my God, I have
0: to meditate and I have 12 things in my mind. What I would say is, if you can get to a space that is quiet and just breathe, yeah. that, that really you're on your way. When you hit about 60 to 90 seconds mm-hmm. of just noticing your breath... Right. Uh, you're, and you're breathing, the, the monkey mind starts to calm down. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you get to 90 or 120 seconds, all of a sudden you notice, oh, my mind isn't... It,
1: it's, it's not firing on 100 things. It's, mm-hmm. it's slowed down. And that's when you can truly hear it. You know, there's yeah. so many of us have such busy lives, and it's just so important to find that quiet space to hear what you are truly thinking. Right. I think it's really important. It but always I,
0: starts with us. Yeah. It's yeah. always.
1: It's, um, and that clarity break concept, too, which is another part of traction. And we, my leadership team and I, we, we track whether we had a clarity break that week on our data sheet in traction. And it's, it's not usually very good. We are, we're like, oh, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that. So, any other things that you do to rejuvenate your soul? I paint. I've been painting for uh, 30 years. So you're a true artist. I do not paint. I'm oh, true not. <laughs> artist.
0: There's always time. Uh, started having gallery shows. And so, yeah, that's my uh, that's my release.
1: OK, Bob. So the <laughs> last question, which you might know, but what is the legacy that you would like to leave behind? Color. Yeah, uh, to bring some color to the world,
0: <laughs> both in terms of what I'm doing in business and also in painting.
1: Creativity and and it seems like part of your legacy is really supporting that creativity and letting people express who they truly are. I'd say through art, so that's beautiful. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Owning Your Legacy. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with others and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about me and how I am owning my legacy. You can find me on Instagram at Lorette Rondonet and online at loretterondonet.com. Until next time.